0: Alright, our ushers uh, will gladly bring you a Bible if you don't have one with you this morning as we're going to be looking at the Lord's Word revealed to us in the first chapter of Genesis. So if you've got your Bibles and you would like to turn there, that's where we're going to be this morning. Our our text will be in Genesis today, but before we get started there, I, I want us to think back to a period in Israel's history when they tried... Rather, when they cried out to God to give them something that they actually already had. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel approached the prophet Samuel and they cried out to him. They demanded that he give, or that he ask God to give them a king, a man like them, to rule on a throne over Israel. Now, Israel already had a king, they had a great king. God was ruling over Israel theocratically. It was the only nation in the world with that kind of special relationship to God. As His chosen people, Israel were told what to do and how to do it by God through the prophets according to the scriptures that had been revealed. But Israel was discontent and they desired what all the other nations had. They desired a ruler that looked like them. They desired a ruler that was like them. And so when Israel desired a man to be king over them, God emphatically warned them what would become of that choice. He said, If I give you a human king, they will conscript your men to military service. That king will gather a large army and will make you fight battles you don't want to fight. A human king will force men to work the ground and to harvest the resources of the land that belong to that nation. A man on the throne would press even the daughters of Israel into service for the needs of this government and would compulsively increase the wealth of the government through taxation and through tithe. The best resources of the citizens would be in danger of confiscation through eminent domain if there is a man on the throne. Essentially, if Israel insisted on being ruled by one of their own, all of the sinful tendencies of man would be given an authority that would be difficult to resist. God knew the people would cry out when people realized what a mistake they had made. And He also made it clear that He would not hear their cries, for it was they themselves that had begged for this scenario. You can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, I know that America is not Israel. We have to be very careful about associating any nation in the world right now with the Israel that we are told in the New Testament is Now a spiritual Israel is a nation of people all over the place that are are following after the Lord God and are called and saved according to the blood of Jesus Christ. But it is not difficult to see that some of these same pitfalls of man's dominion continue to impact man to this very day. Because man desires to have a man on the throne and, and refuses to allow the rule of God to be the great rule that is all that they really need, we have suffered at the hands of men. We have, we have struggled through despotic rulers and we've dealt with their tendencies to break the law of God and to disregard His higher authority. Now, God teaches us through this as He allows us to experience the, the difficult reign of ungodly men. We learn lessons from that experience. As human beings fail in their leadership roles, as they limit freedoms that ought not be limited, and as they use their power to fill their pockets and bully the weak, we learn valuable lessons about how God's leadership is infinitely better than man's leadership. Or we don't learn those lessons, and then we have to learn them again and again. And God is uh, okay with teaching us as many times as we need. So having needed to learn this lesson again, God has been allowing his own people throughout the world to experience the fallout of human leadership. And we have recently seen vivid evidence just north of our borders in Canada. We want to draw attention to something that has been mentioned from the pulpit for the last couple of weeks. It's Canadian Bill C-4. Uh, This bill was originally proposed in 2020 as Measure C-6, but it died in legislation. Conservative leaders in the parliament voted it down. It was reintroduced at the end of 2021 and in a very confusing move. It was fast-tracked, not by the liberal aspect of the government, but by the conservative branch of the Canadian Parliament. And the very people who voted down C6 the year earlier. Even more shockingly, this bill passed unanimously without one dissenting vote. Bill C4 bans any therapy that counsels someone towards embracing God's natural design for their sexual identity. C4 labels this kind of counseling conversion therapy, which is a buzzword right now, which is very ambiguous. I don't know if you've ever seen ads for conversion therapy anyway. It's kind of a misnomer. But what it means is this. If someone of a heterosexual orientation is feeling compelled to pursue people of their own gender or feels compelled to begin to identify and behave as though they are the opposite gender than the one God assigned to them, the only legal action that can be taken is to encourage them in that compulsion, according to the Canadian government. If someone feels conflicted about homosexual desires or desires to act as though they are the opposite gender uh, um, than the one that God assigned them to, And if they seek out biblical counsel and encouragement to help them to stop those temptations and urges, it would be a crime for their pastor to counsel them towards the truth of the gospel. Because this quote-unquote conversion therapy is not defined in any detailed legal language, the impact of the law may reach far beyond the counselor's chair. In fact, preaching the sermon that I am preaching today could easily constitute an indictable offense under the language of C4, if we were in Canada this morning. The penalties for violating this ordinance are much more than a slap on the wrist. Anyone convicted of providing counsel towards orthodox gender conformity will spend five years in prison in Canada. Anyone who simply advertises this kind of counseling will serve two years in prison. This went into effect on January 8th. Now, we still don't know the extent to which the government will seek to prosecute under this new bill. But Bill C-4 violates the fundamental charter rights of Canadians and politically declares that some of the fundamental tenets of Christianity are described in the preamble of the bill to be, and I quote, a myth, and I quote again, a harm to society. And so this bill has essentially become a political declaration against the theological pillars of the Christian religion in Canada. These are not far away issues, my friends. These are not things that might one day eventually make their way to us. This is our next door neighbor's house on fire. It is engulfing the structure as we speak. And if we are negligent to do anything about it, not only will our neighbor's house suffer, but our own home might be the next to catch fire as well. So in the midst of a significant historical time of upheaval, When the very fundamental definitions of what it means to be a man or a woman are being questioned, the people of God must do the only thing that makes sense. They must return to what God has declared is true and then build their whole understanding of the issue squarely upon the dependable word that God declares to us. So for the next two weeks, we're going to take a brief rest from 1 Corinthians 15 and we're going to settle our hearts and minds on some of these Fundamental truths about what it means to be a human being. This week we're going to join many Christian churches around the world by preaching about God's plan in creating human beings to be male and female for His purposes. Uh, After this bill passed, um, several voices in Christendom asked that pastors in solidarity with Canada be preaching uh, about these things. And since these are simply things that we as the people of God need to know, and uh, We thought that that would be beneficial. And next week, Lord willing, uh, we're going to address another threat to biblical truth and human rights by observing the sanctity of, of life Sunday that happens once a year. And we're going to allow the Word of God to show us that human life begins not at birth, but at conception. But for this morning, we're going to be talking about uh, biblical gender and, and sexuality. So to begin, please turn with me to a very early text. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to be reading verses 26 through 28 in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." Lord, we prepare our hearts for this Lord's Day, God, to be thinking of you, to be rejoicing in you. Father, we know that there are many things that keep our minds from the truth, and so we pray, God, that you would remove every hindrance that would cause us to stumble and think differently about who we are and who you have made us to be than the Word tells us to think. We pray also, Lord God, that you would... Use the Spirit to prepare us in ways that we just can't practically prepare ourselves, God. Give us enlightened eyes to understand. Father, we also want to have a sensitive heart as we speak about things that are drastically important to some people, struggles that people have been going through for years and years that affect everything they know about themselves. And so we pray, Lord God, that that you would help us to understand these things in light of the, the transformational grace of Jesus Christ who has the power to overcome every single sin. Lord God, we have only one God above us. And so though there are governments that would try to force upon us a way of looking at the world that does not conform to your declaration of truth, help us, God, to remember that you are above all of these earthly powers. The men and women who are involved with these earthly governments are prone to the same sin and wandering that we are. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to have mercy on them in our hearts and minds, that we would pray for them, Lord, that we would pray that they would seek your guidance and that they would repent of any effort they have made to subjugate uh, the law of God to their own whims. We're asking you, Father, to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we think about these things carefully. And we pray, God, that you would help us uh, to overcome these struggles, many who struggle with Issues of gender identity and same-sex attraction need your help, and so we pray, Lord God, that you would prove yourself to be victorious over everything that could cause a person uh, to fall away from you. Lord, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we pray that you would heal hearts, that you would make people whole again, and that you would make their greatest joy and fulfillment not the things of this world or uh, the, the abstract constructs of society, Lord, but that our joy and our Fulfillment would be in Christ and in his love for us. Father, there is nothing that compares to it. So God, please remember our fellow uh, Christians in Canada and throughout the world who are facing trials like this. There is always opposition to your church and there will be until your return. But Father, we take great comfort and hope in knowing that when you return with a word, all of this will be unraveled and only the truth will stand. And So God, let it stand in our hearts even today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have made the commitment to read through your Bible in a year, which uh, I commend you. If you've decided to do that in 2022, hopefully you're not too far off track so far. And if you are, just get back on track and, and pick up where you left off. Um, but if you started in Genesis, then there's a good chance that uh, this text we're studying this morning is vivid in your mind. You just recently read through it on your own and spent time meditating on it. And that is a happy providence. We're, we're, we're grateful for that. The creation account should be right there before you, and and you're familiar with the context because you've been reading through Genesis. That's great. God could have uh, been using your personal devotion time to prepare you for the sermon that you would hear this morning, in fact. Uh, But I want to start with a caution as well because the book of Genesis is something that many of us have read through many times, and so I want us to be careful that we don't just breeze through thinking about this scripture that we have such a great familiarity with, thinking that there can't be content that we have yet to see or that we might assume that we can't grow in our understanding and appreciation of the importance of this text and this message there is much activity involved in these three verses and to the glory of God it's all his activity it is all him doing and so let's look at four different things that we see happening and let it inform our understanding of our gender our identity in in, in the sexuality that God has given to us first of all we see that God Makes man. And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. In an expression of his creative power, God brings into being that which formerly did not exist. We are what we are because God has made us so. So we are joining this history of creation two thirds of the way through chapter one. God didn't just start making here at this verse. By the time we get to verse 26, He has created a whole framework for existence. A framework that contributes to the life and the well-being of man who He creates here in verse 26. He has made light. He has spoken time into existence. He has provided water, vegetation, creatures to fill the land, the sea, and the air. All the things that must exist to support our existence are made by the Word of God. And so our very life and breath hangs on His willingness to start humanity and to sustain it by His power. We really shouldn't move on until we draw logical conclusions from the fact that we are created by God. We need to settle into that powerful reality. Mankind does not exist if God does not bring mankind into existence. And that means that we owe a debt To our Creator. There is a debt of gratitude and a debt of subservience and obedience that is owed by every created thing, but especially it is owed to God by man. Man who is given unique honors and responsibilities as well that we will discuss here in just a few moments. Do people still believe that fact? Actually, yes. Many of them do. Each year they come out with more polls and each year we see that people slip farther away from an orthodox understanding of Scripture. But despite a concerted effort to convince people that they owe their existence to, to, to no one, a significant portion of even lost Americans would still say that the world and the people in it were made by a God who is above and beyond us. And if that is the case, if there is a God of creation, then we need to confess the debt of gratitude and worship that is only fitting for a created being to engage in. If we have been made, let us think about the one who made us. Now the philosopher might argue here, why should I owe anything to God? Why should I owe him gratitude? Why should I owe him worship? I did not ask him to make me. And I didn't agree to God's terms when I was created. I was simply thrust into this reality and told that I need to worship him. And to that, the biblical theologian might answer the world's philosopher, and? It is a logical fallacy to speak of ourselves as being in some position to negotiate the terms of our creation before we were even created. That doesn't make any sense at all. The very concept that mankind could be owed justice and fairness is entirely founded upon the fact that mankind is. That mankind only is because God has made it to be. So a person might argue that they were not made by God. I understand that many people take that stance. That there is no God and so I am just the product of chance. I am uh, the, the, the fruit of years and years of cosmic evolution. They might argue that. But in so much as they will acknowledge that they were brought to life by God, there is undeniably a perpetual debt of gratitude that is owed by that God who continues to keep them alive and gives them a mind that is complex enough that it might think abstractly about their own existence. There is a second flaw in the philosopher's argument against gratitude, the idea that God has to treat man fairly, and that man has the right to refuse to be what God has ordained him or her to be, this idea is predicated on the mistaken thought that there is something greater than God that governs him, some principle or some abstract set of rules that God must follow in order to qualify as a good God. Friends, there is no impersonal law that exists above the head of God. To which he must bow or conform his will to. It all begins and ends with Yahweh. He is beholden only to himself. Is something is good, it's because it in some way reflects the person and the character and the nature of this holy creative God. And so any concept we have of fairness flows from God. It doesn't govern him It reflects Him. And so we cannot say that God must do this or that to be this abstract of fairness. He is the standard of fairness Himself. And there's a third problem that exists with these philosophical protests that demand us to worship and have gratitude towards God. The idea of fairness is typically founded on the idea of equality. But the fact that our existence comes from God and is sustained by His power is all the indicator we need that God and man are not equals. God is infinitely greater and worthy of more power and freedom than man could ever be. Now, praise the Lord. This God that we have come to sing songs about today, that we have come to bow in humble prayer towards, he is not a capricious God. Now, that differentiates him from other gods, such as the God of Islam. The God that we worship today cannot just go out and murder and commit adultery and do terrible, heinous things and it be all right. God only does the things that he has shown us are good things. And those things flow out of his nature because there is no darkness in him. He is incapable of doing what is wicked. So everything that God allows and everything that God does can only ever be good. He is infinitely greater and worthy of more power and freedom. And he has a nature which is righteous, undefiled, merciful, kind, just. What God does is good because God is good. Not because it conforms to some external set of laws that govern God. So lest we think that we are nothing more than God's created playthings, that we are just these pawns on a cosmic chessboard to which God has no care or, or affection. Let us continue to consider the words of verse 26. Genesis 1:26 26, then God said, let us make man. And how does he do this? He makes man in our image after our likeness. So God makes man in his own image. Man's existence is not independent then. It is representative of, God's existence, or man's existence is representative of the God that made him. He lives not as an autonomous expression of himself, but as a reflection of a greater thing. Man's very being is caught up and measured by his ability to reflect the image of the God who made him. And so there is, I hope you see this, order established in the creation. The triune God declares, let us make man after our likeness. Something is greater than man, always has been greater than man, always will be greater than man, and that something is Yahweh, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one unified triune God. And so the word after here conveys both the fact that man is patterned after the standard of God and that God is first before him. So both chronologically and qualitatively, man comes after God. You might take note here, if you were to read the rest of chapter 1 of Genesis, that God does not make everything in His image. I don't know if you looked to the skies this past week, but several of you in text groups I'm in noticed how beautiful the sunsets were, and those things were gorgeous, right? But that sunset was not the image of God. That sunset was the handiwork of God. It points to the grandeur and the magnificence of Him, but you display the glory of God better than that sunset can. Only mankind was designed to reflect the very person of God. Now, we can't spend too much time going over all of the nuances of how we bear the image of God, and much has been written about this. Many good things that are worth reading, but I think it would help us to meditate for a moment on the triune nature of this God that we are to image, that we are to represent. God is one. And yet He simultaneously and eternally exists in three co-equal persons. He exists as God the Father, as God the Son, and as God the Holy Spirit. And the three persons of the Trinity are at the same time undefiled, or I'm sorry, unified, but distinct. They have the same will, they have the same plan, and they are desiring to accomplish the same goals. But these three persons of the Trinity are at the same time distinct from one another. Much of what they do, they do together, i.e. the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all involved in creation. We see the Spirit hovering over the waters. We see that, that God declares that there should be a, a sun to govern the day and a moon to govern the night. Later on in John, we read that Jesus was was preemptively involved in that creation, that nothing is made that is made, unless it is made through Jesus Christ. So much of what they do, they do together. But some of the things that persons of the Trinity do, they do individually, in concert with one another, but they do distinctly. It is the Son who takes on the flesh of man. Spirit of God does not do that, nor does the Father. The Spirit alone is our indwelling seal of belonging to the triune God. The father alone chastises and corrects his children. That is his role. So these roles give each person of the Trinity distinct responsibilities, but they do not make one member of the Trinity more or less important than the others. And we get a reverberation of that diverse equality when God reveals to us the genders. And so Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, And let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so our third point here today, God makes man. God makes man specifically as a representative in his image. And then one responsibility that comes from being made in the image of God is the responsibility of dominion. Since man is made after the likeness of God, it is God's intention for man to express a degree of dominion after the pattern that he has set in ruling over what he's made, a shadow of the dominion that God himself expresses. And so that does not mean that we are like little g-gods and we get to rule our own planet the way we want to. No, it means that as God's signature creation, the authority of God, the way that he rules, the kindness and the truth and consistency with which he governs that what he has made, should be on display in the people that he has created as an image of himself. When we learn about dominion, things begin to get a little complicated and complex in humanity. Because man is not a powerless being, nor is he inconsequential. He comes after God, but he is placed before much else in creation. We find that the other good things that God has made are now in some way underneath the rule of man that they are given to him for his good and we have a degree of freedom to use them the best way we can. But when a limited being who is afforded some degree of power, they often are apt to develop an appetite for more power. We see this manifest in the fall of Adam and Eve. We see this manifest in all the sin that beget the kings of Israel. We see this manifest in governments like Canada where they think they have a better idea of what is right and wrong than God does. They have stepped in and created a new law that challenges the dominion of the very God who assigned them their small degree of subjugated dominion. But we also see it at the personal level as people attempt to express dominion over their own bodies and over their own personal expressions of gender, don't we? Some would would question what the big deal is about all of this. Um, In fact, I, I often hear politicians who call themselves professing Christians saying, This really should not matter to us. We can still be united, even though I'm forced to vote on this law that makes it okay for people to express a sinful desire and that puts them on equal ground as the marriage that we're going to learn about in just a few moments. What is the big deal? Why can't a person embrace and sympathize with these worldviews and still follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? I love what uh, Dr. Joe Boot says about this. He's the founder of the Ezra Institute, and he's a pastor at the Westminster Chapel, which is a church in Toronto, Canada. And he points out that the Bible begins with the declaration of this God-ordained distinction between man and woman. It's the very beginning of the Bible. And right up front, we have the establishment of marriage between a man and a woman. Genesis 2.24 Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. After the fall of man in the garden, God tells us that God will use the seed of woman to overcome and crush the serpent and his defiling sin. Israel, later is described as the bride of God. This is gender-specific language. And as she spirals into sin in violation of the covenant that she is in with God, it is described as an unfaithfulness, that she is like an adulteress to her God because she has worshipped things other than the God that should be her only love. First, After 1 Corinthians um, is finished, I'm preparing to preach through the Old Testament book of Hosea that addresses that unfaithful attitude of God's people towards their faithful God. So you see this marriage language and this this language that in many ways is built upon an orthodox understanding of gender. Jesus is born how? Of a mother. He's born into a holy family with a, a father, Joseph, who cares for him. His first miracle is performed at a wedding where he turns water into wine. The relationship of the church to Christ is described as that of a bride to her bridegroom. And the consummation of the covenant relationship between him and his bride, the church, is described as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Can you see how the gospel message of hope is intrinsically tied to the issue of gender identity and biblical family? You cannot separate the two. So if you assault the orthodox order of the family, then you do violence to all of these concepts that inform our understanding of God bringing about His will through redemptive history. This is critical information. This is important matters that are worth our our careful consideration and our prayerful obedience to God. So there are some very important points to grab a hold to as we progress through this passage. There is order, isn't there? There is purpose in this creation that God has made, which is so vastly different than what you learn in universities today. If there isn't really a whole lot of order, that we just make uh, whatever we can out of the tip of the spear that we're exposed to now, but God has long-lasting order and purpose to what he has made. We see that there is one agent that is in charge of this order, determining it, driving it forward, setting all creative things on their course. And it's not man, the image bearer. It is God himself who is driving all of time forward. But we also see here that there is relationship. That there is relationship between God and the man and woman that he has made. The beings in this theater are connected to one another in distinctive ways. And so God has established rules. God has ordained rules that are not autonomous. In other words, nothing is off doing its own thing in this creative expression that we have in Genesis. Everything is doing what God has purposed for it to do or is fighting against that purpose. No creature is free to self-govern apart from any outside input from God. God is driving His will and purpose forward. And so that brings us to our fourth and final point. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on this this morning. God made mankind, but verse 27 expands upon that by showing us that God made mankind with a distinction. He made them male and He made them female. Verse 27, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Now starting in verse 26, uh, saves us some time today. I... I tend to want to exposit anything I'm reading, and that's not always possible to do. But by starting at verse 26, we do miss some of the interesting patterns that are established from the very outset of the first verse of the Christian Bible. There are distinct pairs throughout the creation account. And so, within the first two verses, you read that there is a heavens and there is an earth. You read that darkness is created and light is created, and these two things contrast each other they both play a part in time and its measurement the sea is distinct from the land there is morning and there is evening you see this almost heartbeat like rhythm thump 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 where god creates two things each of which gives us an aspect of what god wants us to see he intentionally builds things in pairs, in complementary sets, each contributing aspects of truth that emanate from God. But no one thing totally encapsulating what the Creator is. Only God can do that. And so it should be no big surprise that mankind would also benefit from this contrasting structure, this duality. God creates man, and God creates woman of the same kind of creation, of the same order, Eve is not a different creature altogether, but she is fundamentally different in some key physical, emotional, and personal ways. And here is one of the things that people often do not consider when they are trying to understand why homosexuality and transgenderism is declared a sin in God's Word. Homosexuality, and this is ironic, is an assault on diversity. It is an assault on diversity. What does homo mean? It means in the Latin, same, same sex. The marriage relationship that God ordains as holy and good is a framework wherein two fundamentally different beings, a male and a female of the same species, commit to living together in a complementary relationship that seeks to appreciate and celebrate those differences that exist between them. It was not good for Adam to be alone. Now think about this. When someone is given over to same-sex attraction, in a very fundamental way, their desire becomes for what they already are. Their desires are, in a way, for the picture of themselves. It is only in the marriage of a man and a woman that two essentially different beings not only learn to get along, but become joined to one another in such a degree that they can then express the creative image of God that is inherent in God's design for them. Man and woman, man is not woman. Woman is not man. Neither is considered more valuable or important than the other, but they are not the same exact thing. Now the popular narrative of our day is is working hard to convince you that it is wrong to think of things in these what they would call archaic and basic binary terms. How many of you have heard the term binary before? That means, oh, you know, only a caveman thinks of things in black and white. The secular world wants you to reject that idea that there is a wrong and that there is a right and to exchange that way of thinking for a spectrum upon which there are infinite combinations of ways to doing things, each having their own merit each appropriate given different circumstances. The secular author F. Scott Fitzgerald, who authored um, the book The Great Gatsby, for instance, he once was quoted as saying, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Now think about that carefully for a minute. In other words, what he's saying is the the test of a first-rate intelligence is they must be comfortable with mental contradiction. They have to be okay with saying yes to two things that are diametrically opposed to one another. And if that is first case or first rate intelligence, then I'm happy that God only gave me second rate intelligence, friends. That is precisely wrong, what is wrong with the aversion to truth that our world is displaying against God's declared word today. Because God's declaration is seen as a limit. To man's possibilities, it is rejected and laws are forged to prevent people from speaking of it honestly and openly. To the liberal mind, binary thinking is wrong. Now this is, ironically, a perfect example of binary thinking. Binary thinking is not necessarily wrong. It is simply the acknowledgement that there are instances when there are only two categories, So to say that binary thinking is wrong is to acknowledge that there are two categories. It is something that we can only pretend to deny. And not everything is binary. Ice cream is not binary. I'm so grateful that there are infinite flavors of ice cream. I enjoy them all. But gender is binary, friends, because the one who created humanity determined that to be the case. There is purpose to it. There is design in it. What compels a person to identify themselves as the gender that they were not assigned by God? We must not forget, friends, that there is a human element to this. And we don't preach this message today because somehow homosexuality or transgenderism is an unforgivable sin or is a sin above and beyond all other sins. That's not the case at all. We preach against these. Aberrations of God's law because we preach against all aberration of God's law. So, whenever the Lord tells us to do something and we are compelled to not do that thing, we are in sin and we need to repent of that. We need to conform our mind and our heart and our will to the mind and the heart of the will of the God who created us and knows what is best for us better than we know ourselves. So, we want to think about these things not as some boogeyman sin that causes someone to be outcast or put away, but we need to think about them as sin. And we have to acknowledge that all sin causes man to be outcast and put away from God if they are not in Christ. So what are some things that, that people say lead them to this kind of sin, this particular temptation to violate God's order of man and woman? Well, some would claim that they are hormonal chemistry, does not drive them towards the things that society has determined are consistent with their physical body. Perhaps they were born a male physically, but they do not have any interest in sports. They don't care for war. They are not confrontational. They uh, bathe frequently and dress nicely. There are all these things that they do that don't seem to fit into the typical structure of what our society deems to be manly. Now, let's not make the mistake here of thinking that what it means to be manly is strictly the perception of our society. Manhood is something that God teaches us as well. He doesn't just create us man and woman. He teaches us what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. But there are some folks who just don't have a desire to fulfill what their God-assigned gender is supposed to conform to. Others would say that someone of their same gender has sinned grievously against them or against someone that they love. And that has made them be so ashamed of the gender that they are that they now want to be a different gender. They can't stomach the idea of being the same gender as one who has sinned so grievously against them, whether that is sexual abuse or, or domineering uh, behavior or manipulation. The list goes on. For others, there is a very strong sexual desire towards the same gender that they are. And it's something that they can't seem to put away. It's something that they can't seem to overcome. And so they don't see living as the gender that they were assigned to be or desiring the opposite gender. They don't see that as something that could ever be a possibility for themselves. And others simply have this innate aversion to being, to, to, to being what they are told to be. They don't want to be determined. They want to express their autonomy. They want to be individualistic. And any kind of effort to shoehorn them into a certain way of life or certain mindsets towards themselves or others is outrightly rejected. And we can have compassion to those struggles. We need to listen to people that are going through things like that and to hear how it is difficult for them. We need to hurt for them, knowing that that is difficult for the human being to battle. And if someone does not have Christ, it is impossible for them to change that in themselves. But whether their arguments are compelling or not, it all boils down to the same thing that every breaking of God's law boils down to. It boils down to a matter of discontent with what God has decided to provide for His people. Friends, you are sexual beings, but you are more than your sexuality. And one of the great lies of our culture today is that you are basically only your sexuality. That that is the one thing that matters. And that if you can't do that the way you want to, then someone has robbed you of who you are. Friends, you are a sexual being, but you are more than your sexuality. And though marriage is fundamental to God's creation and design, you are not designed primarily for marriage. You were designed primarily to glorify God. And marriage is one of the primary ways that he has people do that. But it is not the only way that God has people do that. So to, cons- to insist that you cannot be who you are unless you break the law of God is to miss the point that God has made you what you are. And you will only really ever find contentment When you are at peace with Him, and you cannot be at peace with Him if you consistently live a life that that is a rebellion from the Scripture that He has declared Himself to be to you. The Scripture represents His will for your life. And so you can't say, God, I love you, but I hate what you want from me. I love you, but I reject you as King. Those two things are incongruent. Again, is God the Creator? If yes, then we are beholden to him. We are in his debt and we are obligated to honor his decree. To instead rebel against God is akin to a disoriented and angry patient who is on life support, thrashing about, trying to pull from from themselves the very tubes that are causing them to breathe and are keeping them alive. They don't know that what they are doing could threaten their existence, but they don't want those tubes there And in their confusion, they are trying to remove them. That is is the equivalent of fighting against the law of the God who gives you breath in your lungs and who causes your heart to continually beat. And so as we are about to see, the attempt to redefine one's gender strikes not only at the order that God established, but also at the purpose behind that order. Look at verse 28. This still falls under the category of the uh, the fourth point here today. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so men and women are given a mission, an assignment, and part of that is dominion. But the vehicle through which they assert their dominion is to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with more image bearers of God. Then they can subdue the earth and have dominion over it. So there is a reproductive charge here that is important to God's creation as well. I remember uh, being a little surprised when my wife and I were doing premarital counseling, and I, I, I had always wanted kids, so that was an issue to me. And uh, the man who was doing our premarital counseling was an unmarried elder, a minister. Um, who nevertheless had great biblical knowledge and did a, a faithful job in, in in helping us to see that uh, you don't have to have been there to know what God says about marriage. And one of the things he challenged us with is he said, uh, "I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you how many kids you want to have in the Lord." And I said, "Well, isn't the question whether you want to have kids in the Lord?" And he says, "That's not the question. If you're looking at the Scripture, because God tells man and woman to go forth into the world to be fruitful." and to multiply, and I stopped. And as a, what was I, 23 at the time? I hadn't thought about it like that before. I had thought God gives us all these blessings, and it's up to us to decide whether we want to engage in those blessings or not, but the more I looked at the command of God, the covenantal instruction that God gives for marriage, it is to be fruitful, and to multiply, and to fill the earth. And so I was humbled that day. And here's where the government of Canada and potentially our own government is crossing lines. Government is allowed and even ordained by God. We know that. Romans 13 declares it to be so. And the laws that these human governments enact can be a great benefit upon society. But those laws do not carry the same weight as Scripture does. And they are in fact themselves limited by the declared Word of God. And so there are parameters To human law, yes, human law can be very beneficial to us, but listen to these these parameters. The law can enforce what God has determined is right to enforce, and it is better when it does that, and it does it well. So where the the law of God says do this, our governments should create laws and legislature that encourage the doing of these things. Where the law of God says do not do this, our government and our legislation would be wise to heed that and create laws that parallel that but there are more borders and boundaries to what the law can do. Human law, governments created by man, cannot force us to sin. Or we are obligated to do what? To resist those governments and to do what is right, despite the fact that it is illegal in the eyes of that earthly leader to do it. So the law cannot force us to sin, or we must resist them. And then, thirdly, the law cannot prohibit obedience To what God has said is good. or We are obligated to obey the Lord regardless of the political or personal costs in that. In the United States, we have endured years of the government paying little attention to many of the things that God's law says are sinful. So much of what the Bible prohibits, the law of the United States permits. Hey, you want to commit adultery? Just keep it to yourself. You want to be drunk? That's all right. Just do it in your own house. You want to... Commit idol- idolatry, no, that, we actually encourage that. You know, Drives the economy, doesn't it? You want to be a glutton, that also helps the uh, GDP to grow. So our government has turned a blind eye to many of the things that God's word says we should hate. We have endured in recent years the government saying that many sinful things are not only permissible, but will be defended by the government. So divorce now. You have rights to divorce and to, to break your covenant laws with each other. Abortion, as we're going to speak about at length next week, is defended by our nation, which is supposed to, by God's ordination, defend the life of image bearers. And sexuality now is protected and is given shelter in the laws of our land. And in part, friends, this is to be somewhat expected. God did not allow governments to relieve the church of her responsibilities, right? We cannot expect the government to play the role that the church is called to play. Only the church can be the church. And it is the church's job to proclaim the truth of the word unequivocally and to live it out as an example and to trust God in obeying it. And so the governments are not properly equipped to adjudicate the spiritual grace that God has given to his people. We, the church, are the voice on what is morally right and wrong. But now we have reached the point where living according to the moral commandment of Scripture is being criminalized. The state has overstepped its boundaries and acting as though it gets to determine what the church can or cannot do in regards to the commission given to it by God. And so it is the responsibility of the church not to capitulate to this, but to find ways to stand against it. I had a very real conversation with uh, my older boys last night in, in prayer time. Before we put them to bed, we always try to talk about what the Lord's been teaching in that day. And um, one of the things we were talking about is what the Lord's Day was going to look like today. Now, they didn't make it today because JJ did not have a good night. He was throwing up last night, so we kept them home. But we spoke about how there are other pastors in places right now where laws have been passed who have been told, don't preach all of the scripture or you might go to jail. And so as I was preparing them to learn about that today, I thought about which pastors in Canada might be kissing their kids on the head tonight, not knowing if uh, they would leave the pulpit to enter a squad car, whether they would be able to go home to their kids or whether they would be looking at five years in prison for preaching the true things that we just preached this morning. This is government getting way out of its lane and doing what it has no business to do. We've got to pray for our brothers and sisters. We've got to recognize that this is not only something that the people in Canada who follow Christ are dealing with, but this is, it has been and will be until the return of Christ, the struggle of God's people in the world. How do we represent him despite the fact that the world we live in wants nothing to do with him? How do we facilitate the light breaking through the darkness? So there's much to think about from a message like this, friends. If you're confused about your own gender, there has been a very strong and steady voice that you've been hearing that says that that urge and that temptation is okay. The Christians who say that it is not don't love you And the Bible that says that it is not as outdated and needs to be changed or needs to adapt to the times. And I pastorally stand before you today to say that the God of love and truth has not changed one iota since he spoke the light into existence. And the things that he gives to his people are always good. And that God, if he is your God, loves you too much to let you rest in a pattern of sin that will jeopardize your relationship with him. You are not primarily a sexual being, but your sex is important. And no amount of personal freedom is worth separation from the one and only God. No earthly relationship can rival the relationship that God has drawn you into uh, through his son if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And so if you've come into this place and now you feel like you are amongst those who are opposed to you because maybe you're not a believer today, And maybe you believe that homosexuality should be the free choice of the individual. I encourage you to think about what God is doing here, that he is calling his creation to image him, to reflect the glories of who he is as the triune God. And consider, maybe for the first time today, why homosexuality is not a part of God's plan for us. Consider the beauty of creation and of reproduction and how God desires to fill the earth with those who bear his image And how a world that is predominantly homosexual cannot do that. That if we are to forsake the gender that God has given to us, even if it is hard to be a man as a man, or if it is hard to be a woman as a woman, we're forsaking God's assignment for us. And God will give you no assignment that he does not equip you to handle if you're trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. No amount of temporary rebellion is worth an eternal judgment. And as we looked at in 1 Corinthians 6 a few months back, those who identify themselves with their sin, with their rebellion, instead of identifying themselves with Christ, and you cannot do both. You cannot serve two masters. If you are fundamentally identified with your sin, then you do not have a place in heaven with him. It is when we turn our life over to Jesus Christ and the work of Christ that he did on the cross crushes our sin forever and the punishment that we deserve to pay, the wrath that we had earned for our rebellious desires, when that is put to death on Christ and He becomes our Lord and King, we don't have to worry anything again about hell for ourselves. For we are tied to the Savior forever. We are now a part of His family. He will not leave us or forsake us. So if you are here today and you're not yet a Christian, think about the beauty of this God who has gone to such great lengths to make it possible for you to be loved by him and to be near to him. How do we minister to our children when they are impacted by the gender confusion narrative? We, we do what we cannot expect a godless and humanistic government to be able to do, friends. We take the responsibility of proclaiming the truth. Where possible, we challenge the lost world to deal with the very fact That the social agenda of today is not a fight for personal freedom. It is a fight against the authority and the honor of God. So Christian, if at all possible, take your children's education into your own hands. Homeschool your kids. If that is not possible, I know that it is not always possible, then invest the time to help your children see the difference between what the government is teaching and what God holds us to. That must start when your children are little. We can't afford to think when my kid is 15 or 16, I'll sit down and talk to them about these things because they are being taught these things through Sesame Street. They are being taught these things at a very early age. And so it is our charge, it is our responsibility to teach our kids the beauty of these relationships that God has designed for us, a man and a woman in covenant with one another. By the same measure, we need to remain personally rooted in the declaration of God, so that the changing tides of the culture do not threaten to sweep us off of our foundation? Do your children see a courage in you? Do they see a confidence in the word of God so that when you say, son, this is what God has said, they know that daddy's going to stand for that. And they know that mommy's not going to change her mind no matter how many people at work tell her she's wrong. So we must stand for the truth, friends. How should our brothers and sisters in the north deal with their their new threats? They must search the scripture to see who their true leader is and determine to follow him above all else. Now, many are unaffected by this in a sense because many places that call themselves churches forsook the word long ago and stopped really following it. They must repent as churches. They need to see how far they are from the Lord God and how they are on the wrong side. Governments are useful and they are beneficial to us, but do we owe them everything like we owe to God? Does our existence hinge on our government's willingness to let us live? Totalitarian regimes work hard to convince their people that that is actually the case, that if you don't conform to the ways of the government, you will not live. They do that by seizing control of the basic commodities of life and by threatening the very existence of their citizens a tyrannical government encroaches on and seeks to push God off of his throne. But we must not buy into that lie, friends. We need to identify the threat, which is not government truly. It's sin. It's the sinful heart of man that does not desire God to govern it. We need to confront that threat through repentance and through turning to the gospel of Jesus Christ and recognizing that there is no greater joy than what Christ gives to us in his blood. We have to de- declare the truth and declare it to whoever will listen, whether or not they agree with it or not. And we will see in the weeks to come, maybe even soon as, as this afternoon, my, my uh, Lord's Day is going to be spent praying for brothers in, in the pulpits in, in Canada. We will see what price it costs the church there in the north to remain faithful to her one true love. But God will persevere his people through this. How do we guard the church's freedoms here, friends? We live out our faith, and we do it publicly. We don't hide who we are, for we are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation, and it governs our lives. So as a Christian, let your faithfulness to God determine everything that you do. When you vote, vote as a Christian. That is a freedom that we are given here as Christian believers in America that other places don't have, so make use of it while you can. Get involved with things on a local level. Try to make a difference where you are. Big changes are made by small things adding up over time. So make a difference where you are at. Remember that regardless of how we are treated, our defender is the Lord God himself. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. She may have to suffer for a time, but she will not be defiled and she will not be forsaken. And in time, her groom comes for her. Let's Thank the Lord God for the confidence that we can have in him and for the clarity that he gives us in his word. God, we thank you for being a good God to us, a faithful shepherd. Lord, your sheep don't need to know everything. Um, That's due to the difference between us. You are so much greater, and you are the one who's in control of us, Lord. So really just reveal to us what we need, God. Help us to see the importance of the biblical family. Help us to understand the glory of Christ and those who follow after you and trust in your salvation and your redemption alone and how that will manifest itself in these very structures that you built from the very beginning, God. Help us to care about our family. For the men in this room, Lord, help them to understand what biblical manhood is. Don't let them to allow the the narrative of a society to determine what manliness is, but let them turn to the word so that they might see that, that man who is truly a man honors his wife and cares for her and loves her that he dwells with her in understanding that he is not a burden to his children, but that he is willing to chastise them and care for them and point them to the truth, and that he is himself an example of sacrificial love to them, so they might get a picture of Christ's love in the way that their daddy treats them. Help women to understand the biblical role of of womanhood, that that there is such grace and humility, that the the humility of Christ is on display in his willingness to subjugate himself to the the demands of the Father and to, to... to fulfill his calling, even though it hurt him, even though it was difficult for him. Lord, help the women of your church to not be ashamed, to not suffer shame from this feminism movement that causes them to think or tries to get them to think that they must be a man to be equal, God. It's not the case. Father God, give us clarity and help us to rejoice in the fact that true satisfaction does not come in us pursuing the depths of our feelings, emotions, and desires, but true satisfaction comes from our desires changing to Christ. And so do your work, Spirit. Help us to have a a displeasure for the things of this world. Help us to know that the only true light that comes to us is through our Savior Jesus Christ and the ways that he has manifested his love among his people. Let us worship you well, Lord God. Let us wait patiently, knowing that there may be many, many more who your spirit will save as a result of this preached word in due time. So Father God, when you are ready, come back and judge this place. Put us right, God, and put away once and for all this tendency in man to rebel against what you have declared is true and good and lovely. We praise you and thank you for this time in the name of our one Savior, Jesus Christ. For the sake of time, we are not going to have our last song today, but I want to leave with you with a benediction. So may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole soul, spirit, and body be kept blameless until the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I pray that you can return and worship again with us tonight. In the meantime, have some great conversations with each other. I'm sure there will be much to talk about. Be blessed as you go and have a wonderful Sunday.